with my financial health doc. Welcome to the Financial Literacy Podcast for healthcare professionals, where financial security and wealth topics are not a taboo. Welcome back to the show, everybody, and I hope that you guys are enjoying the beautiful spring-like uh, weather, and I just know that uh, summer is just around the corner. Unfortunately, we're still dealing with COVID, but numbers are steadily you know, uh, coming down, and that we hope that by summer, things are much, much better in our hospitals and with COVID. So enough about COVID because I think we're all tired of it. So we're going to talk about something that I think is very important. And if you've listened to my podcast all along and so far, you understand and probably realize that I like to talk about insurance a lot. I like to talk about insurance for many reasons, one of which is, one, if we have a family, we need it. But two, in my mind, we want insurance. And for that reasons. I'd like to talk about it a lot. And so you may ask yourself, why do I want insurance? Well, I don't see insurance as like everybody sees it. I see insurance as a asset like anything else, like stocks, like bonds, like REITs, like real estate, like property. It is just another asset. And so if you see it that way, you do want to have life insurance. If you see insurance as just another asset, then you can understand that when you build your portfolio of 60-40, 70-30, 80-20, whatever the mix is, in that 20%, you are looking at fixed income. You're looking at something that has fairly low risk, but also fairly low returns. Well, insurance product belongs in that category. It is a fixed income type of category, but the yields are much better than your regular GICs and your regular bonds. And so I look at it as another asset. I don't look at it as just life insurance. The reason why I'm talking about this today is because we're going to talk about life insurance and how to evaluate that. I tell people, you know what, you should get life insurance if you're married and you have children. But the question that we get asked a lot is how much, how much life insurance should I get? And how should I get it is really based on what you want to do with it. Do you need it for life insurance only, which I call death insurance? But do you want it because you want to create an asset class? And so those two different perspectives will give you very, very different answers. Today, I'm going to be inviting an insurance expert who's going to be talking to us and helping us try to figure out how much life insurance I need. But two, I want to figure out with her how much life insurance I want. And so those are two very different questions, and the way we want to answer them is also very different based on what we want to use the life insurance for. So without further ado, let me introduce to you Kathleen, who's going to be helping us try to answer these simple questions. And when I say simple, I was kind of being sarcastic. It's really not that simple. And we'll let her tell us why. In this particular episode, we're going to be talking about insurances again. 
but we're going to dive a little bit deeper into the maybe the nitty gritty of insurances, especially life insurance. Uh, I'm sure that you have come across this situation in the past or you will in the future if you are entertaining life insurance. And a lot of the questions that we have when it pertains to life insurance are more the general stuff that you can find in my previous podcast on life insurance, whether it's term or whether it's whole life. And so you can get a good sense of what the differences are between the two types of insurance. But when it's time to sit down with an advisor uh, and a broker, uh, many things uh, need to be discussed. And one of those is how do I know exactly how much life insurance do I need to get? I mean, it's a very common question. And at the end of the day, if I had to do it on my own, what do I use to figure out how much insurance I need? Hopefully by the end of this podcast that you get a better sense of how many ways we can try to determine that number. So I would like to welcome uh, Kathleen to the show. Thank you, Vu. Thanks so much for uh, having me today. Looking forward to uh, chatting all things uh, insurance. You know, Kathleen, it is an honor for me to have you on my show. Uh, the audience must know that Kathleen Gebotis entered the insurance industry back in 2009. In 2016, Kathleen earned her Chartered Life Underwriter designation, the top tax and insurance planning designation. Now, with almost a decade of experience, she ranks as one of the top insurance advisors in the GTA. Kathleen Geboti specializes in comprehensive estate and insurance planning for entrepreneurs and professionals. Kathleen, how long have you been in the industry? I've been in the industry a while, love uh, educating people and, and helping different types of you know doctors on what's best for them. I'm uh, very excited to have this conversation and uh, to go forward with it. So my audience are healthcare professionals. So they could be doctors, they could be dentists, they could be chiro or physio, optometrists. And so I've got a whole bunch of people who are part of my audience. And, you know, healthcare professionals are not the most educated on personal uh, finance and also money management. Today, what we're going to try to do is answer one specific question. If I'm about to buy life insurance and I'm sitting in front of an insurance broker like yourself, the first question that I'm sure that I'll ask, and I'm sure you get this very often as well, is, you know, first of all, tell me why I, I should buy life insurance. That's the first question. Why should I even get it? And the second natural question is, okay, now that you've convinced me that I need to get some, well, where do we start? How much do I need, Kathleen? Very, very good questions that, that come up very frequently, as, as you had mentioned. Um, I think in regards to why we need life insurance, you know, it, it, it does depend on a few factors, right, where we're at in life. But typically in your younger years, you need life insurance to, you know, take care of liabilities, outstanding debts, maybe provide an education fund for your children. God forbid you pass away if you have children. Uh, so there's a lot of factors in the earlier years, but typically to make sure that that surviving spouse, the liabilities are taken care of and also providing income, an income replacement for that surviving spouse, God forbid, either or both of them uh, pass away. And then as we move on to the later years in life, 
typically, you know, super high level, what, what's important on the insurance front would be for transitioning wealth, taking care of any estate tax bill, estate tax bills in regard to that aspect. So there's a lot of factors that go into why we need insurance and how, and then the next question of how much insurance do we need? And typically in the industry, I find uh, a lot of brokers are, are guilty of this, of, of pulling numbers out of a hat. You know what? Let's take, you know, 500,000, a million bucks, 1.5 million, whatever it is. So I think it's so important that we do take a deeper dive on how much insurance you need, how that's calculated, because a lot of brokers don't review that topic. Okay, so why don't we do that? So when a client is asking you that question, what process do you go through uh, in your mind to do the analysis? What are the different processes that you use? And then we'll talk about other things that other people have used in the past and we'll kind of critique them a little bit. Lead us a little bit into your mind when I say, okay, Kathleen, I have, uh, I'm, I'm Vu and I have a spouse and I've got two kids and I'm ready to purchase life insurance. Tell me how much I need. How do we go about this, Kathleen? So typically we'll start off with something that's called a life insurance needs analysis. So what that is, it's a planning tool that allows us to calculate to the exact dollar how much insurance you need if you want to be fully to the nines protected and have your family protected. Okay, and and there's two components to that analysis. Okay, so the first component, as I touched on briefly before, would be liabilities. So that would be any outstanding mortgages, uh, any loans or lines of credit. And we also like to include a small final expenses. So uh, in other words, a small funeral expense, God forbid something happens. If we take a look at those those three points, um, and, and typically there's one additional that we include in that, I guess, liability section, and that would be an education fund for the kids. You know, if you had any wishes for the kids and, and you wanted to pro- provide, you know, a lump sum of that they could use towards their education in the future, I find those four points, the mortgages, lines of credit, funeral, and education fund, wholly make up that first section of our liabilities. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I I think those are the major debt anyways. And so it's very important that, you know, a time of death, whenever that may be, and God forbid, it's not in the early years, that uh, those liabilities are covered so that our family members are not are now not left with you know a bunch of debt that they need to pay off. Correct. And not left uh, with the emotional stress of how they're going to do that and how are they going to have to sell the house? How are they going to afford this on top of the emotional stress god forbid of of you know losing someone. Yeah, and we've seen this before where you know a family a nucleus of you know mom and dad with the kids and then one of the spouse dies and then they have to sell the house and either have to move out or be now you have a, a single parent who's now struggling just to make ends meet and also put the kids through school. So those are the type of scenarios that life insurance is trying to avoid and right. trying to transfer the risk to someone else for a small premium. Correct. Correct. So that that's for- what I would say would be the bare bones, the basics of how much insurance you need. Very simply, your worst case scenario, you want to be able to cover 
that first component, all the liabilities. So that, that would be typically if, you know, there's a client on more of a budget, they only have, you know, X, Y, Z per month, and they want to make sure they, they have something, I would say that would be the least amount of insurance you could get away with to, to protect your family. What you're saying is, if I had to buy the minimum of life insurance to cover, I, I would need at least to cover all the current debt Correct. Uh, that I will leave behind. What would be other factors that you would consider to, in terms of how much life insurance, if I can afford more than just the minimum? So what are the other factors you take into consideration? The second component of the life insurance needs analysis process would be income for the survivor. And what that means is, God forbid, and you know, we have mom and dad, God forbid one of the spouses pass away. That surviving spouse is now out. The spouse that passed away contribution to family income for the next X, Y, Z years. So God, let's just take, say we have a couple, you know, 40 years old and the wife makes, you know, a hundred thousand. The husband makes a hundred thousand as well. Okay. So the family combined income is 200,000. Okay. God forbid one of the spouses pass away. The family is used to living a lifestyle on 200,000 a year. And now they are financially strained down at a hundred thousand per year. God forbid someone passes away. So basically our second piece of the puzzle to, to being fully protected would be taking a look at, okay, what's that lump sum amount we need, God forbid one of the spouses passed away to provide income for the surviving spouse and for the kids so that they don't have to adjust their lifestyle on top of all the other, you know, emotional and financial strains that they may be going through. You mentioned, you know, mathematically, we're talking about a family nucleus of surviving on 200,000 and then one spouse passes away and we're now down to 100,000. But in reality, it's really not 100,000 because the the other spouse that was there was present at the time was helping with raising the kids uh, with different type of fam familial commitments. Without that spouse now, the remaining spouse has to burden herself or himself with all those familial commitments. And that yeah. may mean a reduction in working hours. And so her or his income may be reduced and it's no longer 100000 Or right. if he or she wants to remain that $100,000, uh, she or he now have to uh, engage and employ a nanny or some other help which now increases her annual cost. So as much as we think mathematically, we're going from 200,000 to 100,000. In yeah. reality, it, the, the math is a little bit more complicated than that, correct? Correct, yes, yes, thank you. That's a very, very, very valid point. And uh, so typically, you know, we take that, we try to take that into, into effect. And what we look at is we say, okay, Currently, the family is, let's say, you know, living off of the 200,000. We take anywhere from 70 to 90% of family income. And we take a look at, okay, God forbid one, one or the other spouse passed. What's the income that would be replaced of the current spouse that's surviving? And the difference between those two values, we basically use a calculation that allows us to determine based on a, you know, 
XYZ growth rate? What is the lump sum we would need at, you know, 20 years out or 10 years out, depending upon what, you know, what age the, the clients are, are at. So we use a few factors here. And, and as you mentioned, we take a look at that and, and basically our calculations come up with a lump sum on top of the liabilities that gives us our total need of insurance if we wanted our family and, and everything to be fully to the top protected. So when you do that, then you're sort of calculating the maximum uh, of the need. Correct. So, so when you're doing the calculation of the debt only, we're sort of de- trying to determine the minimum. Correct. And when you're, when you're taking the other factors, you're now determining, okay, what would be the maximum need? Uh, of, of the insurance. When I did mine uh, with my broker, he added another factor because he did ask me, you know, what, what would you like your children to be? I'm like, well, I, I want them to go to university and they could do whatever they wish they want to do as long as they're happy and doing it. And then one of the questions he asked me is, well, wouldn't you want your kids to be doctors? And I thought really hard about it, and I'm not sure that I would want them to be doctors, to be <laughs> to be honest. But let's just say that my aspiration was for my kids to do, you know, uh, university and postgrad and do get a PhD and be, I don't know, the next leader of the UN, whatever that may be. And yeah. so, so we now have to take into account those type of calculations. And so, it's not a really cookie cutter type of analysis, is it? No, it's not. And and you, what you're discussing relays back to, to what I mentioned on that education fund or gifting for the children. So, you know, average person, you know, tells me, hey, you know, I'd, I'd want to give 50000 for the education. But you're right. You know, some clients say, hey, yeah, if I want my kids to, to go to XYZ school and get XYZ education, they may want to add in this analysis instead of just 50000 for the kids, maybe 200000 right? So it's not cookie cutter. It it varies. There's, you know, certain healthcare professionals who have four mortgages, and then there's some who have none, right? It, it, everyone's at a different point in life. And, and you nailed it on the head. It's, it's basically, hey, you know, making sure that you're doing a proper needs analysis, and you're, you're taking all these factors into consideration. And uh, especially that your brokers utilizing these analysis and not, you know, pulling numbers from the sky. Right. Now, a a story that I can tell the audience is I I have a few colleagues who they want their children to go to no less than a Ivy League school in the U.S. And so if if they weren't to, you know, University of Montreal, University of Toronto, that's not enough. They they have to go to some Ivy League school in the U.S. So I guess if if that's the plan and that's the strategy, that needs to be uh, factored into the life insurance for sure. For sure. And that, that means on that education fund and, uh, you know, wishes for the kids. Again, instead of that, you know, 25, 50,000, we're looking at maybe three or 400. Oh, yeah. Even uh, maybe half a million if we're talking about Ivy League school. Okay, there we go. Okay, there we go. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I, I just hope my kids make it past high school. And that's all I wish. Okay, good, good, good. <laughs> <laughs> so now let's talk about the needs analysis in the later years. You mentioned that earlier. You know, what we just went over is very valuable, I'd say, you know, anywhere from your 20s to 
to 50s, I, I think that's that's a pretty good, obviously, different situations, different 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 ways we can look at things. But I think in general, that's a good way. Now, once we start getting older, okay, obviously, our working years are becoming more limited. Most, you know, healthcare professionals, I find, I don't know about you, you can jump in, but, you know, either want to retire earlier or, you know, there's the odd ones that say, hey, I'm going to work till 65 or 70. But typically, right, when we get 50, 55, some people are considering retirement in the next, what, five or 10 years. So at this point in life, too, we're finding, you know, hopefully, fingers crossed, but the liabilities have gotten fairly minimal. Okay, so what we're looking at here is more so around, okay, some planning on transitioning wealth tax efficiently through insurance and taking care of the estate tax bill. So the analysis per se, I guess, in our later years requires a bit more heavy on the, I guess, financial planning, okay? And, and there's many different ways and, and all the banks and different companies, there's many different softwares out there that, that will help generate these values for you, you know, your health, you healthcare workers. But essentially the analysis would be around, okay, what are your current assets? any liabilities, projecting retirement income, and projecting that estate tax bill, right? When we get in our, you know, 70s, 80s, 90s, what's that going to look like? And do we want to use insurance as a way to cover that and and transition wealth and, and make sure that the estate is transitioned tax efficiently? So I would say later in life, it's a lot more complex. There's a lot more factors, and it does require some pretty uh, a lot of time to, to sit down and make sure that those factors are determined and, and contributed to the overall analysis. Now, what you've said there, I, I want to bring back to a, a particular point. You know, the, I was told, and I, I'm very sure of it, there are two things that you cannot escape. Now, I was told three, but I'll start with the two. You can't escape yeah. taxes unless, you, unless you're born in Monaco. <laughs> Uh, but otherwise, you can't escape tax. And the other one you cannot escape, Correct. which is death. And so I tell my patients, there is no 99.9%. It's 100%. So those are the two things we cannot escape, taxes and death. And the third thing I was told is, at some point, we all get hacked. <laughs> Better make sure you have good cybersecurity. <laughs> so I don't know if that was a marketing scheme or not. Love but it. anyways, just <laughs> to say that we all get hacked at some point. So coming back to these two truths, these uh, two things that will happen. And you brought up the point of, you know, the need in later years. And I just want your opinion on this. There are a lot of people who are in the buy term and invest the rest uh, category. Their argument is, well, once I've reached a certain age and I've reached a certain uh, accumulation of assets, I am now quote unquote self-sufficient. And so I no longer need life insurance past a certain age. And healthcare professionals typically will have a high income. Compared to the general population, we tend to have a higher income. And so the tax bill at the end, which is 100% because we die, all of us, the tax bill is quite high. And so I want to just get your gut feeling and your, your sense of buy term and invest the rest it really does not meet that final goal that you were talking about, the final tax bill, does it? No, it does not. And, and uh, this comes up fairly often. And, and what I always like to say is, you know, the wealthy 
individuals out there, right? What depending upon your level of wealth, they don't need insurance. You are a lot of them don't need it, but they want insurance. Why? To take care of a tax problem. They don't need it and they know they don't need it. And they can be at exactly as you said, quote unquote, self-sufficient, like Galen Weston, the Westons, for example, right? But, you know, the Westons, the Weston family, another example, they currently, and, and this was an article, you know, I read the other day in my, my Chartered Life Underwriter magazine, they don't need the insurance, but they want the insurance. And so much so that they had 12 insurance policies on the grandfather of the Westons. Is this a, is this a public knowledge? Yeah, oh, yeah. I have the article. I just read okay. it the other day. I can send it to you. The point I'm trying to make, there's the example, right? Uber, uber wealthy Canadian family. They, there's no chance they need insurance, but they utilize the insurance and they want the insurance. And it's a part of their plan to take care of a tax problem. You're, you're right on the track. And quite simply, I think most of the buy term invest the difference guys have just quite simply not been properly educated on how the permanent insurance plans act as a vehicle, you know, to mitigate tax and, and transition wealth. And that's been my experience in the industry. You know, I've, I've been referred a handful of the, the term invest the difference guys. And I find if you actually sit down, go through the details and explain it so that you know, they understand typically, you know, 99.9% of the time, you know, their, their viewpoints are, are, uh, are more open-minded and, and, and they see these types of plans in a different light, if that makes sense. It does make sense to me. Now, I, I want to come back to your point of you saying you've sat down with these individuals who have a certain mindset of buy term and invest the rest. And mm-hmm. as you explain to them why they would want, not need, but why they would want a permanent life insurance for that particular strategy, what has been your experience? Have they been receptive? Have they been struggling, combative? And at the end of the day, how many people actually understood your strategy? I think the biggest factor, you know, if I reflect back on, on this topic, would be that most of the time, a lot of Canadians do not understand the tax they are going to pay when they pass away. Typically, so let's take any healthcare professional, you know, I'd say at least 50% of them have, for example, let's say a corporation, okay? So I'm just gonna use this as an example to start. So if you have a corporation and you have funds in a corporation, when you die, essentially, your family is paying, you're giving to Justin Trudeau anywhere from 70 to 90% tax, okay? Because we pay number one tax at a corporate level. Number two, we pay tax on our investments when we die as they're deemed to be sold, okay? So that's layer two. And then to get the money out of the corporation, we pay another third layer of tax. So effectively your tax rate, you know, if, if you're not educated on these insurance plans, you're going to be leaving anywhere from, you know, 60, as I said, depend, again, there's a lot of factors, but on average, anywhere from 60 to 90% is going to be going to Justin Trudeau, unless, you know, we implement some sort of, you know, insurance planning strategy. And I think what resonates most with these, you know, buy term invest the difference 
is quite simply understanding that, hey, you know, if you don't have the insurance, you know, okay, if you're comfortable giving XYZ to the government, that's okay. But if you're not okay with that, and you want to keep the wealth in your family, if you prefer to keep that with your family versus Justin Trudeau, then, hey, this is a great way. This is a great, you know, strategy to utilize. And I think that that point in itself, just educating and being aware of those different layers of tax and how your estate is taken care of when you do die helps clarify a lot of the myths around around life insurance. I uh, 110% agree with you. I think most of healthcare professionals at time of retirement and at time of death, our problem is not an accumulation problem. I think we make a good enough income that we don't have a finance problem per se. The problem we have is at time of withdrawal and at time of distribution. So we don't have an accumulation problem. We have a distribution and withdrawal problem. And that problem stems from the fact that we have extremely, extremely high taxes. That being said, I'm not averse at paying tax. Like I, we need taxes to, to you know, build roads and hospitals and you know, uh, support education and the arts and all that. So I have no problem paying tax. The problem that I have is paying a lot of tax that is way beyond my uh, societal contribution. Exactly. And so, I mean, someone told me once, if you don't want to pay tax, all you have to do is not work. <laughs> right. So if I'm working, I, I expect to pay tax and I expect to do that, but I want to pay my fair share. I think we need to recognize that given COVID and the amount of spending that we're doing now, how many billion are we in debt now? I don't even keep counting. Gosh, anymore. it's, it's high. It's 200, high. 290 billion at the current rate. Yeah. And God knows what it will be when people come back to work and realize that there's no work and a bunch of people won't be, will be on EI. So 20 years from now, uh, the tax rate is not going to be the current tax rate. It's going to be much, much more than this. Correct. I, uh, on the same page, the tax rate odds are, you know, if not sooner than 20 years are going to go up. So, you know, it, it circles back to, right. Do you, at the end of the day, you don't need the insurance, but you want to utilize it so that, you know, it's staying within your family versus, you know, going to, to the government. A lot of healthcare professionals, like you just got to ask yourself this one question, do you want to keep money in the family? And if you do, then it's worth visiting the, you know, insurance planning tools with, with your advisor and, and taking a deeper look. If you can answer, if you want to keep money in your family, then that that's a green check mark to take a look at your insurance plan, take a look at your estate and your retirement plan, or do a quick life insurance needs analysis, depending upon the stage you're at in life. And, and uh, that will be of, of, of big value to you. I think you mentioned something that I, I, I think it's worth repeating. Uh, and that is regards to the ultra wealthy. Now, healthcare professionals are not ultra wealthy. I mean, we are, we are in good position, but not ultra wealthy. But even the ultra wealthy want the insurance because they don't buy insur- uh, life insurance for the life death benefit part. They buy it for the strategy part. They buy it for the cash value part. They buy it for the estate planning part. The and tax. I think that- Yeah, you got it all with an overlying, everything you've said there exactly, 
with an overlying riding aspect purely for tax purposes. Right. All comes down to tax. Right. And I and I think that if we don't see that or we don't recognize that, then uh, at the end of the day, well, if if I'm dead, I'm dead. I won't really care about it. I'm I'm six feet underground, but my family will will suffer the the wrath of it. Correct. And that and that goes back to what you know that that question, right? I, I'm going to say it again. Do you want to keep money in your family, or do you want it to go to Justin Trudeau? Like that that's that's the question you got to ask yourself. And uh, that's why the ultra wealthy, you know, you can Google these ultra wealthy families and, and they're utilizing these plans to uh, purely, you know, they don't need it. They need it less than any, anybody out there, but they do want it and they, and they do, they do implement this. And this goes back to, you know, Walt Disney, how did Walt Disney start Walt Disney through his insurance policy? Like, like there's so many large successful you know, Canadian American families that have utilized insurance in, in some aspect or another for, for tax purposes. So let's continue with our original discussion on what type of analysis uh, we need to do. So you've, you've explained to us your process, how it's done and how it should be done. I've read in a lot of books uh, over the years that talks about different uh, other methods. So I'll just uh, name them to you and you let me know your thoughts on them. One is cover the debt analysis, which we kind of looked at in the early years of life. So we, we talked about that already. But the other one is a multiple of annual income. So a lot of the books and so somewhat, you know, financial uh, gurus are saying you need to buy life insurance that is equivalent to XYZ multiple of your annual income. How good is that method? What are the flaws of it? That's really, yeah, it's really funny you mentioned that one. When I first uh, got into the industry, I heard that multiple one and I remember going to one of my mentors and, and being like, but what, what's the, the reasoning for the multiple? Where does that come from? And I remember he couldn't give me an answer. So what I always thought about that that uh, that multiple, honestly, and I'm I'm still asking mentors and people people I meet with today where that came from and what the reasoning is. And you know, I personally wouldn't use it. I think we can do and and what's available to most brokers today, you can do a proper detailed analysis. So. My two cents on that is, is, you know, I've asked some of the most successful brokers in the industry, mentors on that, what that means. And, and no one could give me a, a, a proper straight answer. So I think that speaks for itself on, on the method. You know, personally, I'd rather, you know, be able to understand why we've come to these numbers and an analysis versus just taking a multiple and saying, hey, that's that's the reasoning. I believe that was from like way back in the day. And I know a lot of older brokers in the industry sometimes use that. I haven't heard of it as much. So I think in the new age of, of determining insurance, I wouldn't recommend that method. But, you know, if someone can tell me why that, you know, give me more info on what's the purpose of it, why we use that multiple, etc., then I, I sure would be open to it. But that's my two cents on it for now. I think it's I think there's a lot more tools available to to your brokers that can provide a bit more of a logical way to determine how much you need. 
I think that's a good point. You know, as uh, healthcare professionals, we like to think that we are scientific, like we we practice what we call evidence-based medicine. And so in the financial world, we call that best practice, right? <laughs> and so it's interchangeable terms. And so what you're saying is, you know, using the method of multiple is probably not best practice anymore. And so Correct. we should do a needs analysis in a more scientific way. It's kind of like having all the facts and, you know, make taking logical steps to come up with a number that makes sense to you and makes sense to, to me. And quite frankly, you know, taking a multiple is, I think, old, old, old school in the industry and, and not many very successful people today can have much to say on that. I think we kind of get a sense of what a good process and best practice would look like. Now, obviously, you know, we can come up with a number using these tools and process, and we can determine, you know what, Vu, you need, I don't know, 5 million in life death benefit. And so I'm looking at that and I'm saying, wait a minute, Kathleen, uh, I've got two kids. Uh, they need a lot of diapers. Uh, they, they drink a lot of milk. And I'm thinking that I need to pay this mortgage and my uh, Mercedes Benz. I really don't have enough money to purchase the life insurance that I require, or at least you tell me I should have. So I'm sure that a lot of clients have told you that in the past uh, because it really depends on cash flow. And so I, I know what my needs are, but I may not be necessarily be able to meet them. So how do you work with your clients to reconcile that? Very good question. And this comes up, I'd say two thirds of the time. So for example, typically we do the needs analysis and let's say, you know, the client needs 2 million of coverage. But based on their cash flow, you know, they can only get X, Y, Z, let's say a million of coverage. So this is where, you know, and I know you've talked about it in previous podcasts, but this is where the type of insurance comes into effect. So typically, if, if we're a bit constrained on cash flow, which is very common in our earlier years in life, in our 30s, 40s, 50s, because as you said, the kids are, you know, diapers, private school, Mercedes, whatever it is. Typically, we're going to look at a term solution, okay, because we can get the most amount of coverage, okay, for the least amount of contribution, okay, so typically, in that situation, we'll start off with a term solution, okay, and uh, we'll revisit changing that policy to permanent before that term length expires. So essentially, what, what that would entail is just making sure that you're working with a good broker that's keeping in touch being present and, and, you know, checking in every year to see where you're at with your cash flow and, and what makes sense at that time. So I think for most, most that this does come up a lot. And again, you know, the focus would be on, okay, based on your budget, what can we implement? Okay. Closest to what you need. And typically that would be implemented in a term life uh, situation temporarily until cash flow frees up which sometimes we see in our late 40s, early 50s, sometimes it's even mid 50s, sometimes it's even mid 40s, and really everyone's situation is different. So we take all those factors into account and typically term, term insurance is our, is, our, uh, is our starting point. Term insurance has a lot of advantages, uh, being it's easy, uh, it's uh, relatively inexpensive, it transfers risk 
very, very well. And it's a good starting point for most people. I think what you mentioned as well, that was said, but not necessarily obvious to our listeners is the fact that you have to be in contact with your broker, at least on a regular basis to look at what the needs are moving forward. The other thing that you've said, but not really not obvious was also having a team because you were talking about, you know, making that analysis, reviewing it on a regular basis, working it through with your financial planner, working it through with your accountant. And so what you are saying is the broker is part of a team and this team is working on a process and working on a strategy and a plan for the next 20, 30 years. So I definitely see a lot of people buying life insurance here and there and not having a plan. They just bought it because they thought they need it and haven't really implemented a plan. And and life insurance, yes, it's for life insurance, but there's also a plan to this. If they're doing it right, there should be a retirement component to it and a state planning component to it. And it all fits within a strategy. And I think you said that, but it may not be obvious to people. Yes. No. Uh, thanks for thanks for pointing that out. I guess that's a that's definitely an overlooked area in the industry. You know, it shouldn't be. You know, you as the client reaching out to the broker. The broker, I I would say, in how we run our, you know, obviously our practice. You know, we're proactively keeping in touch once a year, even if nothing's changed, just to see what's happening. Are there new kids in the picture? Or you know, do we need to update X Y Z? I think that's very very important to be working with a broker that's present to keep you, you know, as healthcare professionals, especially during this past year, you know, you're busy dealing with, you know, 10 other things. So you want someone that's going to obviously keep you kind of on, on, on track and, and check in with you. So yes, I think that's very important. And I think a lot of our industry, unfortunately, does not work like that. And secondly, as you said, yeah, you know, we're, we're a part of the team and, and we're making sure that you know, everything's working in alignment and, and we're there to help and support and, and many, other, many other aspects as well. I want to come to another discussion, uh, which is more, I think, for more the sophisticated uh, listener. And as you mentioned, for the ultra wealth but I don't see why the principles would not be applicable to us. I mean, even though we're not ultra well, the same principles can still apply. And that is using life insurance, not as a life insurance, but as a saving vehicle. Or I, I, I know that in the industry, we don't wanna call it this way as an investment vehicle. So I'm not gonna say that. I just thought of it and I just said it out loud, but forget I said that. So it's not an investment vehicle. So how about I call it as an asset class because it is an asset. And so if I was to use uh, this life policy as another consideration and looking at it through the lens of an asset class, how would you determine how much life insurance I need to buy and what, what are the type of things that I can do with the cash value in a whole life? And again, I don't want to go into the nitty gritty, but just maybe high level thoughts on how you would plan that with your clients. You know, this comes every everyone's situation is different. And, and this would take, you know, a lot of factors and in, into effect. 
But I think typically if, if someone, you know, as you said, is more astute and is coming and saying, Hey, I'm aware of these vehicles and I want to utilize it for, you know, the investment or asset class purpose. I think, you know, quite simply the needs, there's many different ways we can go, right? We can still do the traditional route of the needs analysis. We can do the financial planning and work our way backwards and figure out what makes sense. I've come across, you know, astute people like that. And and sometimes it just becomes a question of, okay, what's your cash flow? Okay. If you're, you know, you have a, you know, professional corporation and you're retaining, you know, a hundred thousand a year. Okay. Obviously you never want to put all your eggs in one basket. So to be well diversified, typically what I see is, you know, anywhere from a third to a quarter of what you're saving per year going into a vehicle like this. If you want to look at it from that, you know, asset class perspective, I think typically from my experience that that's, you know, I do have the odd person that doesn't want to do the planning that doesn't want to go through the full needs analysis. And they say, Hey, I'm saving 200,000, let's say. So, you know, 50,000 a year is something that, that typically makes sense. You know, there are situations where depending upon the goals and in the future, if it's the 200,000 per year, sometimes a hundred may go in maybe a bit less. It really depends on the discussion and what their goals are and, and uh, what they're looking to, to do with the insurance. But typically I would say on average and don't, again, take this with a grain of salt. This is just from, from experience and what I see. It's not a rule of thumb or a formula by any means. What I see on average can be, you know, a quarter to a third of, of what one would be saving per year in their cash flow to redirect into an asset class like this. So when we are looking at life insurance, especially we're talking about whole life here, when we're talking about whole life insurance with cash value, and we're doing it for that purpose, not, not for the purpose of life insurance, but for the purpose of uh, estate planning, tax planning, and with the lens of using it as an asset class, that we're not doing the same needs analysis. I think the basic is obviously doing the needs ana- analysis from a insurance perspective. But what you're saying as well is, okay, let's look at cash flow and let's look at how much I'm willing to put into this asset class versus put it into stocks or bonds or ETFs. The question is based on my cash flow and I want to diversify, I don't want to put all my eggs in one basket. How much am I willing to put into this particular product? And that's a very different analysis than than just life needs analysis. You can design that policy with with those goals in mind. And so there's a whole different way to look at this to increase the type of savings you want to do and to achieve your goal in that savings vehicle. Just at a high level, this is sophisticated. This is not something that you would do on a whim, on a back of a piece of a paper. This is a lot of discussion. The same way you and I would sit down with a portfolio manager and figure out, you know, how much percent in stock and how much percent in, in equities and what type of return we are trying to achieve. This is I like I think a little bit beyond just a discussion of death benefit here. And I think that's what you were saying. And I just want to make sure the audience understand that. At the end of the day, it's, you know, exactly like, you know, sitting down with investments, portfolio manager, sitting down with, 
with someone who's educated in the insurance space and understands the ways that these plans can be set up. Because as you said, right, they can be set up with a death benefit focus. They can be set up with an investment component focus. And there, there's a multitude of ways that they can be set up. And it, and it really comes down to, okay, you know, making sure that you're working with someone who can, you know, understands what you want to do here. And it can be set up to, to maximize what you're, what you're looking to do in, in the best way possible. Most people have a misunderstanding of life insurance because every time we talk about life insurance is like, what, do you want me to die? Why are you selling me life insurance? And that's the only concept that we have in society. And I can tell you from a Chinese perspective, I'm Chinese and in the Chinese culture, you never talk to people about life insurance because the moment you talk about life insurance is like you're wishing death on them. So that's, that's the first cultural faux pas, I, I would say. But if we're looking at life insurance from very different perspective, there are different many ways we can use life insurance. Unfortunately, most people think that life insurance is just one way. And I'll give you an example of what I mean. So I, I like this example because I, like, I, I love motorcycles, even though I can't ride one. And so most people think that life insurance is like a, a Kawasaki or a Kawasaki Ninja, right? One of those street racers that come very vanilla and you can't do much about it. Versus life insurance could be a Harley Davidson, where you could buy the frame, you can buy the engine, and then customize everything else. Life insurance is a customizable asset, uh, but nobody thinks of it that way. And it's, it's very mystified in, in our society. And people who don't understand life insurance do not see that, unfortunately. Life insurance very un- is very unique and, and tailored to the individual. And there's many ways it can be set up so that it's not just, you know, focused on that death benefit or on that investment component. It can be set up multitude of ways and, and, and can be very customizable, like, like, like the motorcycles. You got it. Exactly. So um, I think we've had a great discussion today on how much we need, why we need it, why we want it, and, and all the ways that, that it can be set up. So I would like to thank you very much for coming on the show and demystifying some of that. And I think it's an important question of how much life insurance I need to get, because that is probably the most frequent question that I get from my colleagues and probably you get from your clients. And so before we end this podcast, Kathleen, uh, on this topic, is there something that is burning on your chest that you need to get off your chest? Uh, before we end the podcast so that you can tell our audience? You know, I touched on it earlier. I think it's just important, you know, for the audience to understand that numbers should not be pulled out of a hat for how much you need. And it is so, so common in our industry for brokers to do that. That's number one. And number two, you know, make sure that you take the time to understand what your broker is recommending to you. And if you don't understand it, then you're probably not working with the, the best broker for yourself, right? Really understand what the solution is that, that you have access to. And lastly, make sure that, you know, your broker's in communication with you at least annually, if not 
every once every few years, you know, I think at least once a year is, is, is basics. Yeah. I think those three key points uh, should be a big takeaway for the audience. And thank you kindly for uh, having me on today. I'm happy to educate and, and really appreciate you uh, having me on here. Thank you very much, Kathleen. And thank you for uh, leaving us with some words of wisdom. Well, I hope you gained a lot of knowledge today. And if you did enjoy this podcast, please share with one more colleague. I am also going to take this opportunity to remind everyone of the workshop coming on on June 4th from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. on Zoom. And it will be a workshop, interactive workshop on financial literacy on June 4th. So please go to www beautifultimesinc.ca forward slash conference and workshops to look at the agenda and register. If you want to reach out to me, you can go on to my new website, financialhealthdoc.com. Again, it is financialhealthdoc.com or email me at hmfhd. 2020 at gmail.com. One more time, it is hmfhd2020 at gmail.com. How is my financial health doc podcast is hosted by Dr. Vukit Tran. Dr. Tran is a physician with a special interest in personal financial security and wealth education. Dr. Tran does not render or offer to render personalized investment or tax advice through this financial podcast. The information provided is for informational purposes only and does not constitute financial, tax, investment, or legal advice. Please confer with your advisor, lawyer, or accountant for specific advice. 